In recent years, it's become popular to talk about worship wars. And when people use that term, they usually mean disagreements over different forms or expressions of worship. And specifically, I think they usually mean disagreements over different styles of music. But the first thing we should say about worship wars is that it's unfortunate worship has come to be seen as just music. That's much too narrow an understanding. Worship is a lifestyle. That's clear throughout the Old Testament. Worshiping God was something that touched on every area of people's lives. That's made clear in the whole system of laws and ceremonies and offerings. Everything from sex to harvesting your fields was to be done in a way that honored God. It was to be worship. We get the same picture in the New Testament. For example, in Romans chapter 12, we read, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Paul was not talking about singing. Worship is a lifestyle. And that's why our church mission or vision statement says, Pelsall Evangelical Church exists to glorify God by equipping God's people to live lives of worship and to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. My point is that worship wars is an unhelpful phrase to use if you're really talking about an argument over organs or guitars. But having said that, even as we insist that worship is a lifestyle, it's also true that sometimes we're more focused on worship than other times. We are to worship God in the way we go about our work, for example. But that is a bit different from the worship we bring to God in a church service or in our devotional time at home. And tonight, we're going to think about that second kind of worship, the kind of worship where we're consciously focused on worship, as opposed to the kind where we try to honor God while we're doing other things, like working or spending our money. And to help us think about this, we're going to turn to Psalm 33. If you're using a church Bible, that's page 560. Psalm 33. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the ten-stringed lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. 
He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. This is God's word. Psalm 33 teaches us there is room for different moods and expressions of worship. And it also shows us that genuine worship of God is based on the truth about God. In this psalm, we find two very different expressions of worship. The psalm opens with a call to exuberant praise. And it ends with a statement of quiet trust. Both are legitimate expressions of worship. And both of them are based on the truth about God. This psalm is set out like a sandwich. The two expressions of worship are dealt with fairly briefly at either end of the psalm. The first three verses and the last three verses. The expressions of worship are like thin slices of bread. And in between them, taking up verses 4 to 19, we find the truth about God. That's the meat in the middle. That's the substantial part of this worship sandwich. Psalm 33 is about worshipping in truth. The psalm opens, as we've said, with a call to exuberant praise. This is the first of our two slices of bread. Verse 1, sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with a harp. Make music to him in the ten-stringed lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. The first thing to notice is who is being called to praise? The righteous and the upright. That tells us that our praise is not acceptable to God unless we're in a right standing with him. It's pointless singing heartily to God if we're wallowing in sin and disobedience. But equally, verse 1 is not saying we have to earn the right to bring praise to God. It's not saying that we qualify or that we bend God's ear by being a good person. In the Bible, it's God who declares men and women to be righteous and upright. And his declaration is based on his grace. It's never based on our worthiness. The righteous and the upright are those who have recognized their sin, 
who hate their sin and who have come to God for mercy. That process is summed up in the word repentance. And for you and me, that means turning to Jesus as our only Savior from sin. Our praise is acceptable to God when we turn from our sin, including the sins of the past week. And we come before God relying on Jesus. Praise that's offered up in pride and self-righteousness or praise that's offered while we're still clinging on to some sin, it's not going to be accepted, no matter how exuberantly we might offer it. That's why self-examination and confession of sin are good ways to prepare ourselves for worship. Then notice the kind of worship that's being called for. It's to be joyful, verse 1. And that's to be reflected in the musical accompaniment, verse 2. The harp and the ten-stringed lyre. Today we think of big harps that produce that kind of ethereal, meditative music. But that's not what the psalmist is thinking of. When the Bible mentions harps, we should be thinking of something like a banjo. Music that makes your feet tap. Then as well as being joyful, the praise being called for is to be fresh. Verse 3, sing to him a new song. Now that certainly means that new songs will be written and learnt. It's often been noted that you can tell a lot about the state of the church at any given time by its ability to produce fresh songs for worship. If we're forced to rely on what generations before us have produced, what does that say about the freshness of our own praise and our own experience of God? But having said that, singing a new song can't just mean singing a song that we wrote last week. The Psalms themselves were used year after year in the liturgy of Israel's worship. Even as new psalms were being written, the old ones were being reused. So singing a new song is about more than the age of the song. As we live our lives with God, we will continually have new reasons to praise him. We'll always have fresh experiences of his love and his grace and his mercy. So whether we're singing a recent song or an old one, we will sing it as a fresh offering of praise. It will come from our hearts as a new song to God. We're also told that the accompaniment to the praise is to be skillful in verse 3. In everything we do, we're to offer our best to God. That starts with offering him our undivided hearts. And then from those who have given their hearts... The most skillful or the most skilled should lead the praise. It shouldn't be the case that anyone who fancies a go has a go. At least one reason skillful playing is called for is that it's least likely to distract from the praise. Someone who's sawing their violin in half or blowing raspberries through their trumpet is not going to help us to praise. And I know that because I've experienced it. 
The worship being called for then is to be joyful, fresh, skillful, and finally in verse 3, it's to be loud. Shout for joy. The worship in Jerusalem was often loud. The book of Revelation tells us worship in the new Jerusalem will be loud too. Verses 1 to 3 are a call to offer praise to God that is full of fervor, jubilation, and exuberance. Now we'll see later that there's room for other moods and ways of expressing worship. But we have no grounds for saying there's no place for exuberance in our worship. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul assures us that all Scripture is useful for teaching us. And that includes teaching us about what is appropriate in our expressions of worship. Psalm 33 teaches us that exuberance is entirely appropriate. That was the first slice of bread in this worship sandwich. And now we come to the meat in the middle. Because the form of our worship is important. But the truth that fuels our worship is of far, far greater importance. In verses 4 to 19, the psalmist talks about the foundation of genuine worship. The truth about God. We know that these verses are the foundation of worship because verse 4 begins with the word for. In other words, we're about to be given the reason for worshipping the way verses 1 to 3 have called us to worship. And the message is, your exuberance in worship should not be fueled by your current emotional state. It should not be fueled by the mug of coffee you had before the service. Or the energy that's coming from the instruments. It should be fueled by the truth about God. The way to increase our enthusiasm for worship is to focus on the God we're worshipping. And not just on our own thoughts about him, but on the truth that he has revealed about himself. And the psalmist focuses in on five aspects of the truth about God. First of all, his trustworthy character. Verse 4, For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. Everything God says is true. He can always be trusted to do what's right. The things that God loves are good things. And the signs of his love are all over this world. We worship God because of his trustworthy character. He will never deceive us. He will never fail us. And the more we grasp this, the more enthusiasm we'll have to worship him. Verses 6 to 9 focus on another aspect of the truth about God. His power shown in creation. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke 
and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The psalmist says, go back and read Genesis chapter 1. That will fuel your praise. The God we worship is the God who created this world by speaking powerful words. Our God doesn't just have power to create. That would be awe-inspiring enough. But our God creates by his word. When God says something, it's done. There's no doubt. There's no uncertainty. He speaks and it happens. That power was shown at the creation of the world. And God has not lost that power. The God we worship is supremely powerful. And the more we grasp this, the more we'll be moved to worship him. And following on from this in verses 10 to 12, the truth about God includes the truth about his unshakable purposes. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he chose for his inheritance. You'll notice that verses 10 and 11 parallel one another. The plans and purposes of humanity are foiled and thwarted. But the plans and purposes of God stand firm. Not just for a while, but forever, through all generations. And notice that it's God who foils and thwarts humanity's plans. What that means is that God is dependent on no one. The fulfillment of his plans does not depend on what humanity does. Not only does God have power to carry out his own plans, he has power to overrule our plans so they don't derail his own. Some human plans are outright evil and rebellion against God. But other human plans are well-meaning, but misguided. But neither evil nor well-meaning human plans can ever mess up God's plan. His purposes are unshakable. No government or influential personality or social system can stop God from doing what he has decided to do. God is well able to either bring their schemes to a halt or turn them to serve his own purposes. And the Bible gives us plenty of examples of both. When humans decided to assert their own authority by building the Tower of Babel, God brought the whole thing to a stop. He confused their language and he scattered them over all the earth. But on the other hand, when Joseph's brothers tried to ruin his life by selling him as a slave to Egypt, God didn't put a stop to their plans. He used them to bring about his own purposes. He raised Joseph to power in Egypt. And he saved the lives of many people through Joseph, including God's chosen people, Joseph's family. And later, Joseph could say to his brothers, you intended to harm me, 
but God intended it for good. Continuing to think about God's purposes, verse 12 confirms that God's chosen people are at the center of his purposes in this world. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. In the Old Testament, God's people were mainly Israelites. But it was always God's plan to call others to be part of his people. That happened in a big scale in the New Testament. God called Jews and Gentiles to be part of his people. And not through their nationality, but through their faith in Jesus. Both the Old and New Testaments are clear. God's people did not choose him. He chose us. Second Timothy explains that God chose us before the beginning of time. And as the song says, no power of hell and no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Our salvation didn't come about because of our own goodness or wisdom and our perseverance until we stand in God's presence won't be because of our own goodness or wisdom. Our salvation and our perseverance rest on the truth of God's unshakable purposes. And the more we grasp this, the more we'll worship him. Our praise is also fueled by the truth of his perfect knowledge. Verse 13, from heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. The God who created this world is fully aware of everything that goes on in this world. And for God's enemies that should be a sobering truth. But for God's people, it's an amazing comfort. You matter to God. He cares about you. He takes a deep interest in your life. He knows about the things you've never shared with another human soul. Your fears, your sorrows, the things that keep you awake at night. And he knows your sin too. And he still loves you. The more we grasp this truth, the more we'll respond to him with worship. Then in verses 16 to 19, the psalmist says our praise is fueled by the truth of God's saving power. Verse 16, no king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. Commentators tell us the horse was the most impressive piece of military equipment in Israel's world. So in our world, we might think of tanks and missiles, or powerful computers and satellites that can pinpoint a target from far, far away. The psalmist wants us to think of all the power of human strength, and all the equipment and technology that can supplement human strength. Put all of it together, he says, 
it's still no guarantee of victory. A small oversight or a small glitch can mean defeat for even the strongest human leader. You know the rhyme that says, for want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the message was lost. For want of a message, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a horseshoe nail. Human strength does not guarantee victory. At its very best, it's unpredictable. It depends on a million little details that could go wrong. And when it comes to the things of greatest importance, human strength is a vain hope. But, verse 18, the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We define the fear of God as recognizing that he is God and we are not. And in this context, that means depending on him fully. Or as the next line puts it, putting our hope in his unfailing love. God loves his children. He has the saving power to care for the children he loves. He may show that power by delivering us in temporary ways in this life. And he will certainly deliver us eternally when this life is over. God's saving power is the only certain saving power. His power works for his people's good. And the more we grasp this, the more praise will flow from us. Every sandwich needs two pieces of bread. And now the psalmist gives us the second one. Verse 20. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. In response to the truth about God that's been outlined in verses 4 to 19, we find a statement of quiet trust. Waiting in hope is shown in patience. It's shown in peacefulness. The psalm closes with a very different mood than it opened with. There it was exuberance. Here it's quietness. Two very different moods that lead to different expressions of worship. Both of them equally valid. And both of them equally fueled by the truth about God. It's important to be clear, this is not a quietness that comes from ignoring reality. Or emptying our minds or meditating on our navel. This is quietness that comes from focusing our minds and hearts on the truth about God. And notice that this quiet expression of worship is equally full of rejoicing in verse 21. It's equally confident. 
We should never assume that quiet and reserved worship indicates a lack of enthusiasm. And we should never assume that exuberant worship indicates a lack of seriousness. The same truth about God can lead to different expressions of worship. Sometimes shouts of joy and sometimes a quiet, peaceful confidence in God. So we should never assume that the person who expresses their worship differently from us is not truly worshipping. In fact, the outward expressions of worship shouldn't be our focus at all. We've said they're like thin slices of bread. Psalm 33 takes up just a few verses to deal with them. The meat is in the middle. The truth about God. And that's where our focus should be. Questions about volume and instruments and rhythm and singability are important, but they're a long, long way from being the most important. So if you like bouncy songs and clapping and raising your hands in worship, great. But don't make that your focus. Focus on the truth about God. And if you like slower, more solemn songs, and if you prefer your hands to be at your sides, great. But don't make that your focus. Focus on the truth about God. If we all put our focus on the meat in the sandwich, we'll be unlikely to fall out about the bread. Whatever our personalities and our preferences Let's all of us ask God to help us focus on him. And with this in mind, we're going to close with a song that focuses in on the character and power of our God. 